Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Florida Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. This week, be sure to head to GolfWeek.com to keep up with all of the happenings from Royal Melbourne Golf Club in Australia, where the President's Cup is going to be contested between the best players from the United States, captained by Tiger Woods. You've probably heard of that guy. As they take on the best players on an international squad that's captained by Hall of Famer Ernie Els. This week, my guest on the floor press is Brendan Steele. Brendan is a three-time winner on the PGA Tour. He's won over $14 million since turning pro in 2005. And while last season was a down year for Brendan, we get into that at some length at the beginning of this podcast, you're going to find out that there's a really good reason why scribes and golf pundits like me seek him out for quotes and insight. As you'll hear, he's really thoughtful and really well-spoken. He's also really popular in the locker room with his fellow pros. I know that you're going to enjoy the podcast. Get stronger, get longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the Take Anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body primed for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So the appropriate buttons are pushed. The recording is going, and I've got Brendan Steele on the line. Brendan, how you doing? Welcome to the Forward Press. Thanks, David. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm doing really well, thanks. Happy holidays. We're recording this on Monday evening. It's the 9th of December. And Brendan, I'm not going to award you the Purple Heart for coming on with me, but um, you definitely get some props for you know coming in off the injured reserve. I would imagine granola and walnuts and such like that are probably still not on the menu for you, but uh, anybody who's had their wisdom teeth taken out knows that it, it sucks. So uh, how are things going for you? Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's worse the later you wait, too, because I've heard heard a lot of stories from people who had them out in high school or maybe the beginning of college. My wife had them out at the beginning of college, and she said, like, no big deal. Now, granted, like, I understand her pain tolerance is much higher than mine, yeah. um, as uh, probably all women and most men <laughs> would be in that case. But um, uh, it seems like the later you wait, the worse it is, and I guess they just grow and get in weirder places in your mouth. And so it wasn't wasn't awesome. I didn't have a great time. Um, my jaw's still giving me a hard time. I go in for my checkup tomorrow to make sure everything's all right. But uh, things are definitely better now than they were a few days ago. Yeah, I um I only had it's funny. I only had to have my um my upper wisdom teeth removed, which I guess is kind of strange. And I had it done probably in my twenties, and I don't think I had it that bad. But I remember for a day or two, it really laid me out. And some people. I think it seems it's it's a lot worse, but yeah, there are certain things that appendix tonsils get it done when you're a kid. Just 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 be done with it, rip it out. Um, especially for your your line of work, not that you necessarily need to you know to to sort of munch on crunchy things, but 
it's it's one of those injuries and one of those things that I think just it's hard to concentrate on anything else when something like that is going on and and you require a a fair bit of concentration in your line of work. Yeah, yeah. And you know what the the thing that's been a real pain in the ass right now is that I'm waking up every day with almost like a hangover headache and I haven't had a drink in like 10 days. So I'm getting none of the fun and I'm getting all of the the punishment. So um, maybe maybe it's my body asking for a little bit of alcohol. Well, yeah, I won't even go there. I suppose we'll keep this at least a hard, like, you know, PG-13 kind of rating or something like that. But um, how has your offseason been so far? You, you played quite a few tournaments um, after the FedEx Cup concluded. If I, you played three or four events, I think, um, before. How, are, how, how is the end of the season working out for you, and how is your offseason so far? So offseason hasn't been amazing just because uh, I yeah. got home right before Thanksgiving and then straight into the wisdom teeth. And then next week we're going into potty training my two-year-old. So Good the offseason is not quite as glamorous as uh, you would you would hope for. But um, but we're having a good, a good time anyway wherever we can. Uh, yeah, I played quite a bit in the fall. I'm not even sure how many I played. I played like five or six, I think. You so, played a lot, yeah. Yeah, I played a lot. Um, it's a little bit of a different year for me this year. Um in 2017 and 18, I was kind of in everything, like all the WGCs, all the majors, all the invitationals, all that kind of stuff. So yep. I was able to really play whatever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to. And this year is a little bit different. I'm playing out of the past champion category or the, um, not the past champion category, but the uh, champion category from yep. two years ago. Yep. So I'm not automatically in all the invitationals. I'm not in the majors. I'm not in the WGC. So I have to put my schedule together a little bit differently and that's actually been not a terrible thing because it's got me to some places that uh i didn't necessarily dislike i just couldn't fit them into my schedule in the past so playing a little different schedule and a little bit more often and um hoping that that things start to really come together here at the the turn of the year gotcha it's um how much of it i suppose was um come if you had some some tremendous success you won a couple of times obviously up in california at the safeway championship you have won what you won the valero texas open in your first full year on the pga tour you sort of set yourself up and became sort of a mainstay um in the top say like 50 75 range steady got a lot of good results and then this seemed like it was the first year when things didn't necessarily go your way it seemed like it was You'd, you'd play some good golf, and then you wouldn't play some good golf. And it, it didn't seem like you were able to string together prolonged periods. How frustrating is it when something like that happens? And it happens to everybody, obviously. Um, but coming off of a couple of seasons where things were really clicking for you, and you, you really had a, a good you know, series of results over an extended period of time, and then when it doesn't happen, how challenging, how much do you, do you think it's, it's a physical thing, and how much of it becomes sort of a mental battle and trying to break a, a negative snowball effect. Yeah. I mean, all of that, like it, it is, uh, it's really been tough. I, I had a long stretch of being really consistent. And so even when maybe, uh, a lot of people wouldn't notice your good play cause you're not winning tournaments or finishing really high, mm-hmm. um, you know, racking up a lot of like top 15 finishes, top tens, top 25s, making a ton of cuts. I mean, I've had some streaks where I've made, 16 18 cuts in a row which yep. is pretty tough to do as yeah. well so just like some years where everything's really consistent really good when i didn't play my best i'd kind of make the cut and and work my way up on the weekend and then when i played well i'd i'd be up there and and have a chance to win and um so last year was very frustrating i mean i i didn't didn't really do anything that i wanted to do i didn't have any good results um i i made 
some changes that didn't work out and then mm-hmm. and then I I tried to adjust from there and I kind of like would adjust the wrong direction and so um I've had I've done some really weird stuff. I mean, I I had um a sports psychologist bend my clubs upright, which I wouldn't have ever had him do before and yep. I but since I wasn't playing that good, I went, "Well, maybe he's right. I have no idea." That totally screwed me up. Then I was playing a ball that's fun less, so I added more loft to my irons and so now all of a sudden my irons are upright and they have more loft and then mm-hmm. like you know, even when you hit good shots in those situations, you don't get it close to the hole. So mm-hmm. you, it's a lot of this little minutia that goes into playing well that, that people don't even understand. So you've got that stuff and yep. then you've got technical stuff. So you've got, you know, swing flaws or um, maybe your wedges aren't dialed in or uh, I've had a flaw in my putting stroke that I've been working really hard to get rid of. So you've got then the technical flaws, then you've got the mental side and the confidence and the things that go into that. So just knowing that that you're doing the right stuff and and being able to stand in there and and be okay with failing as long as you kind of like give it your best shot and know that what you're doing is good enough so you've got all these different components and if you're a little off in one of them it'll affect the other one and and then it affects how you practice as well so when you've got a stroke flaw and you're just working technical on your stroke then maybe you lose a little bit of your touch and your green reading and your mental process as far as your stroke goes too so there's a lot of different rabbit holes to go down, and yeah, I think well, when you're being really good and consistent, you don't get down those. Well, yeah, sure, because I think that, that you get rewarded with the results, and obviously you're in a result-oriented business. And a lot of what you were talking about right there had me thinking about the idea of faith and faith in the process that you're undergoing, faith that you are doing the right things and you're sort of waiting for those results. We're waiting for the, the really positive outcomes. How much of what you're talking about do you think comes down to either, I'm not necessarily going to say a loss of faith, but a questioning of it? Because it sounds like it's a combination of knowing and, and being willing to to let the results go for a little while as long as you're on the right path and you sort of just said that. But having the patience and the willingness to stick it out when things may not go your way or you may not get that result for three weeks, five weeks, more, it it takes a lot of courage in a lot of way to sort of be like, yeah, you know what? It's not going for me and I'm willing to stick this out because there has to be some things. And it sounds like I'm not going to say you gave into some temptation, but you were snickering and laughing as you were just sort of describing some of the situations that you went through. But there there comes a time when like everybody, when you go through so much patient stuff and you wait and you wait, where you're like, gosh, like how much longer do I have to wait? Am I am I wasting time in you know potentially the prime of my career? when I shouldn't be doing this, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be a combination of weighing the, the, the faith of it and the patience of it. But that's, that's gotta be really hard. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I've never been one to be patient either. I've never been somebody to go through like big swing changes or, or big, any kind of changes. And, and I really didn't do that last year. I just like, I did a lot of little things that all kind of went wrong. Got and it. so, so, you know, I'm trying to kind of strip all that stuff away and get back to the way that I, that I used to play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the meantime, I was, I've always been a drawer of the ball. I've been trying to hit a lot more fades, which kind of like narrows up some of my misses, but maybe doesn't get me the shot shape that I'm used to seeing and get me as close to the hole and give me as much confidence. So mm-hmm. I've noticed while I'm out playing recently, I've played pretty nicely, but I'm like, I'll kind of finish around 40th because there's a little bit of that scar tissue there as far as I'm going to aim at 15 feet right of the hole, 
to make sure it doesn't get left into a bad spot, but I'm, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't get left into a bad spot. So I end up hitting it 30 feet right of the hole and two putting, making par. And then guys who are playing really confidently are hitting those shots close and making birdies. And, and so it limits my upside. So it limits my, my good days are three under instead of six, you know, and my bad days Mm -hmm. are, are even par instead of one under two under whatever. So it, it just limits your upside a lot and you can't, compete with how good the guys are right now if you well there's always going to be a couple guys yeah there's always going to be a couple guys at every event who it's their week you know and they're going to be battling it out and then when you get some of the elite players who are going to be playing um and they play less in the fall and the early winter but but they come out and they'll start showing up at places like tory pines and in phoenix and and stuff like that um you have to take advantage when you're playing really well and and it sounds like almost the floor of your game got a little bit lower and it was difficult for you to sort of get to, to string some things along in 2011 when you win at Valero do you sort of ever look back at, at results like that or do you look back at film or video of yourself there or a couple of your wins at Safeway or some of the other really good results to sort of almost mentally trigger something or just remind yourself of things or is it is that too distant have you become I mean as we're ending 2019 you're going back eight years for that first win, is there too great a separation between you and the player that you were to really have that sort of be relevant and, and potentially useful? So I think with Valero specifically, there are a couple things that I can take from that, and and there are a couple things that are actually pretty important. Um, I had a totally different mindset going into that tournament, and it, it's funny because it kind of is in the place where I am right now, which was... That was my rookie year. I hadn't really had any good results. It was my 12th event, I think, on tour. Yeah. And I I was so frustrated and so worried about keeping my card and whether I could compete because I didn't know, right? I didn't have any mm. sort of basis for being like, yeah, you're good enough to play on the PGA Tour. Like, I'm out there and I'm playing and I'm making some cuts. But, mm-hmm. I mean, are you good enough to win a tournament? Are you good enough to get a top 10? Are you good enough? You hadn't answered the questions. Those like, big questions yet. Yeah. No idea. So I decided I was going out for a three-week trip. I was going to go out and just say, you know what? You need to play like you do not care where the ball is going to go. And that doesn't mean like to be super crazy aggressive or anything, but you have to decide that your, your best is good enough, and then if it's not, it's not. But at least you went down with your best stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I got out there and I told myself, it doesn't matter where the ball goes. Run your best process. Get in here with some courage and really like commit to everything that you're trying to do. And it sounds really simple, Yeah. (laughs) but as soon as I told myself, it doesn't matter where it went, I went, well, my nerves went away and I went, Oh, if it doesn't matter where it goes, why are you nervous? And then I'd be like, Oh, I guess I shouldn't be. And so I would just go like, just run your best process and rip it on every hole. And I did that. And I won the first week that I did that. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing what the fine line is. Cause I was in a place where things were not going well and then I popped off a win just because of how how I changed my mindset. So See, it's so interesting to me to hear you say say something like that, and and I get it because I've heard the same thing from other players. You know, in terms of like when they kind of knew that they belonged on the PGA Tour, that that was going to be where they were going to be. They weren't going to be somebody who went back and forth or or was up for a year and then you know they went back to either it was the Nationwide Tour, or Corn Ferry Tour, or whatever. Um, if if I've got the my you know my facts right, you make it up onto the PGA Tour after you win the 2010 Nationwide Tour Championship. Um, that win got you enough points to move you up then on 
that point list where that got you your 2011 card. That's right, isn't it? Yep. That's so right. you you get that win at that elite event, and the nationwide tour is no like it's 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 really good golf. I mean, obviously today we're still with Corn Ferry Tour and and, and other things like that. It's it's the breeding ground for where the champions are going to come. And I don't say that to be a cliche, but if you look up and down the range at any PGA Tour event, just about everybody has put in some time on these tours. And if you can win there and finish top five, top seven, top ten on the season-long points and money list for those events, you're, you're really good. You're really good. I get the fact that it has to be proven again, at least to yourself, on the PGA Tour. But how much of the confidence can you take um, or do you think most guys bring with them when they are successful either on Corn Ferry or Nationwide and they come up now into the PGA Tour? Is there a perception that just because you did it down there, it doesn't mean that you can do it up here? It, that is a great question. I think it's all in how you want to perceive it. So I think if you are a guy like, let's say currently, like Scotty Scheffler, mm-hmm. right? He's coming out, he's playing great every week. And he's, he's been a great player for a long time at the college level, junior level. He believes that there's no difference, it doesn't matter, and he's going to be great. If you believe that there's a step up and that you have to prove it to yourself, it's going to be harder. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was never the guy that was like, in high school, everybody wanted me at their college team. Like, I was scrounging around trying to figure out where I could play. And then when I turned pro, like... You know, I wasn't getting any sponsors exemptions or nobody had any idea who I was. I was just playing mini tours and trying to figure it out. And I played in Canada for a couple of years. And then, then I got through to, to nationwide tour in those days and got to finals at Q school to get my status out there. And then I was like, well, now I need to prove it again to myself to see how much better are the guys on the nationwide tour. And then same with the PGA tour, how much better are they? Like, and so at each level, I didn't really know. I think some of the guys that are that are really good and have been good for a long time and have always won tournaments, they know they belong and and they're seeing it in their peers and the kids that they grew up with that are maybe a couple of years older. They come right out and win, and so they they know and they believe and they trust it a little bit more. Tell me about your experience um, at Cal State Riverside. I mean, that's where you ended up playing collegiate golf. Um, what was that experience like for you? Because it, by your own admission, what you're saying here is you weren't recruited by. The Oklahoma States and the Floridas of, of the world, Texas's and stuff like. That. T- tell me about your experience at Riverside. Yeah, so I mean, uh, Riverside had just added a golf team um, when I went there, 2001. That was our, our first year of the golf team. Uh, they had a golf team in the 70s, which was Division Two, and Gary McCord played there. Mm-hmm. Um, then they took the the golf program away, which I always blame on Gary. And then <laughs> uh, they brought it back in 2001, so it was about an hour from my house. And perfect. Uh, they offered me a nice scholarship, and so I knew I could come in and play right away. They gave me a scholarship. I had just enough space from home that that I could get home when I wanted to, but my parents weren't showing up at my door, you yep. know, whenever yep. <laughs> whenever I didn't want them to. Yep. Um, and uh, so it was it was great for me. I mean, I, I could have probably gotten into some bigger schools academically and then tried to walk onto the teams, but I really wanted somewhere to go and play and have a spot. Um, and that, that was the best option for me. And I had a great time. I think I played 52 or 53 college events a lot of over four years. So That's a lot, I mean, you cannot put a price on what that does for your game to get you ready to go play. If I would have, you know, redshirted and then maybe started a couple here and there and, and lost a couple years playing at a big school, I don't think it would have developed me the same way. And, 
and I actually won three times my freshman year. So I got a chance to get out there and win right away and, and feel what that was like, too. So at what point did you decide, I, I want to be a professional golfer? Because it sounds like you made your collegiate decision based on, I, I want to play. Like that, there, There's a, a goal that you're talking about there without really coming out and saying it. But when, when did the decision that, yeah, this is what I'm going to go for uh, take place for you? I think it's been the same at every step for me. So it's been from high school to college was just, I want to play. I want somewhere that I can go and be on the team and not, Mm -hmm. not be fighting, fighting for a spot really. And then after that, I just wanted to not get a job and see how far I could go. And it was, it was one of those things coming out of school where I, I was confident in what I was doing and I thought that I was good but I never thought I'd win on the PGA Tour or anything like that. Okay. I was just like, I would go play mini tour events and I, I might play well or win one or do whatever. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. Like, this is fine. But like, I'm never going to actually like get out there and do that with those guys, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's, it's interesting. There's um, that separation that you keep coming back to between like you and your ability and your game and, and them, whether them yeah. is the guys who were at, you know, the big division one schools that maybe you could walk on to, maybe you couldn't. The, the separation between, you know, the, those other guys that are going to win those events, you know, on the PJ Tour and me. Um, there's a commonality that's sort of being strung here the whole time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I've, I've always been, I started the game late. I didn't grow up in a, in a town with a golf course. I like, I, I'm not the kid that rolled out on the sixth fairway at a nice country club and, mm-hmm. and had a dad that was a pro and just always knew the game. Like I started when I was 13 in a mountain town without a golf course. So I was playing catch up the whole time. I just always loved the game and I do things my own way. I got a weird grip. I've got a weird swing and, but I just have learned how to do it. Um, so, so how did you get started? I got started. My, my older brother played, um, He's half brothers, 14 years older than me. Um, and so I always wanted to do whatever he was doing. Uh, and I thought he was, he was really good. And I thought, man, this, what a cool game. And so I came home and told my dad, I want to play golf. And my dad was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure how we do this. Um, and he put a net in our backyard and a little artificial putting green and a bunker with some oh sand gosh. from the hardware store. And I learned to play back there. That that'll do it. That's amazing to have yeah. you know, some parents who don't necessarily come from a golf background, and all of a sudden you've got a short game area in your yeah. backyard. That's pretty good. Did it take the win at Valero for you to sort of get the belief in your head that yeah, this is this is where I belong. I've won out here. I've proven that I can do this, and yeah, uh, th- this is going to be home for me for hopefully the next couple decades. You know, I mean, it it did, and then that stuff is all fleeting, though. Mm. It's amazing, like yeah. it. You know, as soon as and I was a belly putter guy, so I won. Oh yeah, I, I remember won, uh, Valero with a belly putter, and then we had that whole fiasco, and they took that away. So then I didn't know if I could if I could win or if I could compete with with a short putter. You know, so now I got to relearn that. So then I had this this stretch of time from, um, you know, five years or five plus years without winning, uh, and not knowing if I could ever get that second one. And and then if you've only got one, you know, people can kind of talk that it's a fluke well, or it's yeah, this it's or it's that, yeah, you know, sure. whatever. Um, and then then you get the second one with the short putter, and then that was like the ultimate validation for me, for sure. Because then then it was like it doesn't matter that that you you can't put the asterisks on it that it was just a belly putter or won, that that's you've his won only twice. Win or, yeah, you've won twice and you've yeah. won it each way. I remember you and I having a conversation on a sort of a soggy day at Pebble Beach, of which they have many of. 
And we were talking about that, and you were still using the belly putter then. And, and I remember it clear because we had that conversation about it and about anchoring. And Tiger Woods later that day was playing at Pebble Beach and said that he didn't like anchored puttering. It was it had been something that sort of festered, and then all of a sudden, where the gears and and everything started rolling. Do you ever look back and and think what would have happened had the anchoring ban not gone into effect and you had been able to stay with that anchored puttering stroke that you'd had? So I don't really just because I've had way more success after it. Mm, so okay. I think I think if I had struggled, uh, then then yes, for sure. Um, and I'm sure there are guys that look back and go, I got screwed and I would have been way better off with, you know, if they hadn't done this to me yeah. specifically. Um, for me, no, because my, my best years have been, I, I changed to the short putter a little early. I changed in the summer of 14. Mm-hmm. But my best years on tour were 16, 17, 18. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's that it's they came after the fact. And even even 2015 was really good with a short putter as well. So um, that I don't really look back at it and, and like wish they hadn't done it or anything. I think it was um, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But it, it, for me personally, it, it may have helped me, if anything. That's interesting. I remember I was on a conference call when they announced the anchoring ban was going to go into effect, and I was able to lob in the first question um, to Peter Dawson uh, from the RNA. And, and I asked him, is there any data or anything that is proving that an anchored putting stroke is more effective at putting the ball in the hole than a non-anchored stroke? And, of course, the answer is no. And they danced around it and said, well, you know, running and getting accurate data like that would be almost impossible, replicating with the same player – the same putt with different putting strokes and such like that. But it, it to me always came down to the fact that the USGA and the RNA didn't like the idea about how that looked. And when they started seeing junior golfers using anchored putters and anchored putting methods that they felt this is, this is just doesn't look right. This is wrong. We don't like the idea. There wasn't anything in terms of numbers or quote unquote proof that it made the game easier, that it made putting easier um, but to, to me, it was just, it's something that it wasn't giving anybody an inherent advantage. And why are we making the game harder? We're trying to uh, attract more and more people to hopefully come to the game. And this is the anchoring bank coming on the heels of the groove rule change back in 2010. Yeah. And it was just one thing after another. I'm like, what the game of golf is hard enough as it is. Um, you play at the most elite level, but you know, for, for John Q public, who's going out there playing at some municipal course, what is this hurting? How is this a bad thing? Um, it, what, what was the overall reaction, if you can even remember, because it's been a long time, when the anchoring ban went into effect, was was there almost in the locker room that you can recall a sense of, it's about time? Or is it more of like, why are we doing this? What, what purpose does this serve? Well, I, I think there's a lot there, right? So I think yeah. there was... There were a few guys that were outspoken that really hated it. Mm-hmm. That was really like, "This is this is BS." Like, you guys can't you can't be doing that. And as soon as you know, Keegan and Ernie and Webb won majors. I think that's when everything changed. Yeah, that really got things going too, was, for sure. It really got things going. So you, I think you had the combination of those three guys winning, with then kids starting with it young and just yeah. you know, like you said, going going to it as just like a, "Hey, let's do this. This works. Guys have won majors this way." Let's learn this as a skill, mm-hmm. and we think it's a better way to putt, or or so and so likes it, or whatever, and, and we'll see how it works. 
I, I think there were only a few guys that were really worked up about it on tour. And I was on the pack at the time, and yeah. we were running through. I think there was there's 12 of us or something on the pack, and then there's the four-player advisors. And, and so I remember going through it, and we, we heard from every single person about what they thought. Do you, are you against it? Are you opposed to it? Do you think – what do you think? And everybody went through and, and said basically, I don't care or I don't think that they should um, get rid of these putters or I don't like anchoring, but – this is way too far gone now. They should have done it a long time ago, so you can't take it away now. Yeah, I remember Tim that, Clark. Tim Clark was only... one of the few guys that was really outspoken. I remember Timmy Clark was adamant yeah. about that, and he said that he had, and I'm going to get this wrong, uh, some type of a condition within his wrist or his hands that he couldn't turn his hands. He's got an elbow thing. Yeah, yeah. and he was like, "How th- this isn't fair. Like this is the only way, and we haven't obviously seen from Tim Clark in a long, long time." But it. I remember it was a big deal, and it, it seemed like there were sides, and then after a certain amount of time, things just sort of quiet down, and, and everybody sort of goes about their business. Um, how much golf do you watch during the off season when you're away from it? Do you, do you watch? So I watch, I watch the Masters if I'm not there, and that hurts. That's the only wow. event that I that I don't that I, I get really upset if I'm not there. That was going to be one of my questions for later is that because you've played in every one of the ma- of the major championships, does it make it worse or do you even watch when you're not competing? And it sounds like the answer is it hurts, but you still so, watch the masters. So I will watch the majors if I'm not there. Mm-hmm. I want to be at all of them. Of course. However, the masters hurts much more. <laughs> the masters now, is the one thing that you want to do when I miss the U S open it's fine because it's such a mess. It's the hardest <laughs> week of the year from like logistical standpoint, from yep. what is the USA, USGA going to do? Yep. Like how's the course going to be set up? Everything's such a mess that it's okay to miss that week. Okay. The PGA runs a really nice event. Yeah. That's always going to be fair. You always know what you're going to get. The The Open Championship is very difficult because you, you travel all the way over there. Yep. You don't know what kind of weather you're going to get. You don't know what's going on. And so the Masters is really the one that, that hurts. Like, that's the one that, that really that stings the, when you're not the there. Is that the best run golf tournament that you guys play? Which one? The Masters? The Masters? I don't know. That's a good question. It's, it's so seamless. I think they have such an advantage over all the other majors, at least, because they're at the same venue every, every, right. Uh, right. every year. So they make improvements all the time. They make it so easy and seamless. Um, it probably is. And, and then the, the field's so small, too. They can do more uh, for the players and make it really comfortable and easy. Um, the PGA does a great job. The PGA is yeah. always like... I always think that the they, PGA is, is underappreciated because, to me, that I tournament runs like silk. They go to some yeah. interesting, interesting venues. Not always yeah. the absolute most elite. Um, and from a theater standpoint, from a fans and a, and a writer standpoint, that tournament delivers fantastic, you know, theater and great stories every single time. And I think that it was always the fourth major and Glory's last shot and whatever cliche we wanted to roll out about it. But um, I love the move to May. I love the fact that it can open up potentially some new venues down the line. Uh, but I think that is the, the most underappreciated of the four major championships, the one that's maybe searching for a little bit of an identity um, on there. But it's it's a great tournament. Yeah, it is. I, I've always really enjoyed them. I always thought that they were run very fairly. They're, they just want to have a great event. 
and it doesn't matter what the score is. They're yeah. not trying to manufacture anything. If it's hard, it's hard. If it's a little on the easier side, it's on the easier side. But we just want it to play really nice. And so I've I've played ones like uh, Atlanta Athletic Club where Keegan won. And I think yeah. he won at eight under par. Yep. You know, and then then we've had some like uh, Whistling Straits was was a great championship, and Jason won it twenty two under something ridiculous. I think so. Um, but they were still both great events. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could care less about par and, and whatever it is. I think if the golf course is set up well, the score is going to be the score. And, and to me, that's one of the things that um, I just don't personally get hung up on. Hey, last week at the Hero World Championship, I don't know if you, you watched this or not. I'm sure you probably heard about it. Patrick Reed was assessed a two-shot penalty for moving sand behind his ball in a bunker. And he said that he didn't mean to do it, um, but he was still assessed the penalty. It wasn't. There was no intent that he had to, to do that. The rules officials on site said, look, the intent doesn't have anything to do with the interpretation in this case, though, with the rule. It, it was something that was done, and, and therefore it's a, it's a two-shot penalty. How well do you think most of the players, if, if they were asked and they answered truthfully, how well did most of the players genuinely know the rules of golf? I think decently well. I mean, you, you have a good sense for... <laughs> when things are a penalty or what you can and can't do. Yeah. I think there's very few things that guys do and go, oh, what do you mean? That's a penalty? <laughs> like that, that, yeah. that doesn't really happen. Um, the hard part can be, you know, now with so many cameras and so many eyeballs watching everything, making sure that you drop exactly where you're supposed to drop and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, where it's like, is that closer to the hole? Is that his nearest point? Did he take full relief? You know, like all, all these types of things that go into it. So we pretty much just have to call rules officials for everything that we do now, whether we know the rule or not. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's kind of a shame. But um, do you guys know the, the rules as well as they should know them? Or is, I no. mean, you, you, again, you, you just sort of laid out a map as to why you need to be air on the side of caution. And I would do the yeah. same thing. But uh, at the same time, you're going to get armchair quarterbacks all over the world who are saying, like, this is your job. How do you not even know the rules of the game? But the rules are so crazy sometimes, and they change, and the interpretation of them is really just as important as what, what's actually written in the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it, it's, it's, the thing is, the rules are, are only one part of what we're doing. And, and honestly, they're a small part. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you were to have any sort of a job where you had different departments, right? Mm-hmm. You have a finance department, you have an HR department, you have a whatever – if you had an HR department and you had an HR question, wouldn't you go to the HR department and ask the <laughs> HR person? It would make a lot of sense, yeah. Right? I mean, that's the way I look at it is like we have these officials. Yep. We're trying to play. We're not trying to play like all my buddies play around the club where it's like, sure, drop it there, kick it out, fluff it up, do whatever you do. Like nobody's playing strictly by these rules. And I, every time I say this, I've said this a few times in different interviews and I always get – people on Twitter and different things saying, oh, everybody that I play with plays exactly by the rules. That's and this BS. And that. and it's like nobody does. People <laughs> are scooping, scooping pots. They're dropping wherever they want. They take two off of one. Oh, absolutely. Every time Phil and I go play together, we take two balls off the first tee. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, which is fine. But, like they, 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 they're, the golf police, I'm assuming are probably not running out to go see you guys and saying, you know, blowing whistles and sirens blaring and all that stuff. It's, it's supposed to be fun. I get tournament golf is a different deal, but Nobody plays by the strict rules of golf all the time. Sure. Nobody. Um, and it wouldn't be fun either. I'll tell you what. If like yeah. all of a sudden we were looking to be the sticklers about stuff, you know, even it, it, it just it wouldn't be fun um, 
in the least. Hey, I want to circle back real quick to to the major championships because uh, I'll wish you good luck in, in getting into some some of those things for coming up in 2020. The the setup is kind of interesting to me in that we've got obviously Augusta National and Harding Park, a course that you probably know pretty well up in San Francisco. Wingfoot, going to one of the bluest of the blue bloods back here in my neck of the woods uh, for the U.S. Open and then Royal St. George. It's a it's a good mix, I think, of well, Royal St. George isn't necessarily a, a new course, but it's it's not St. Andrews. It's a little bit off the beaten path. What what are the generally speaking your favorite major venues? You've played quite a few majors. What what are the places that are the highest up on your list aside from let's say Augusta? Aside National. from Augusta, yeah. Aside <laughs> from Augusta National. Oh, that's a good that's a good question. Um, so I haven't played winged foot since Gil Hans got his hands on it. So I don't know how that's going to look. Mm-hmm. I used to love winged foot. So hopefully that still looks okay. You'll still love uh, it. You'll still love okay. it. Trust me on this. Well, one. That's, so that's it. good. Um, I actually haven't played Harding Park. So I don't really? know anything about it. How are you yeah. a California guy and you've never played Harding Park? Well, it's about a 10-hour drive from Oh, my come house, on. So. <laughs> um, and I haven't been to St. George's. So, uh, but some of my favorites. Now, I, this comes with the caveat that normally – my favorites are going to be places that I've played well. Understood, of course, of course. I'm sure. You, I'm sure. But, I'm sure you love you know heading up to the Napa Valley and playing up there and winning wine. Yeah, battles. exactly, exactly. Um, now that being said, uh, my two best U.S. Open finishes, I probably wouldn't put those as my top ones. But um, Aaron, that was Aaron Hills and Oakmont. Um, I do like Oakmont quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I didn't like about Oakmont is how the members kept telling us that they slow the greens down for the U.S. Blah, Open. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I heard, which, we, we heard that in the media center, too. Which is so funny because it, it doesn't dawn on them that maybe as like a 15 handicap, you don't quite have the touch or the understanding of golf that the best players in the world do. But um, in any event, uh, I really liked Shinnecock until – like the weekend as a venue, I loved it. Now yep. what the USGA did to it, I didn't love it. Yep. Um, I really liked as far as the open championship, Carnoustie was great. Fantastic. Um, it's so great. I'm trying to remember which other ones I really liked. Have you there, played? I've had some bad experiences over there just as far as weather goes. <laughs> you and everybody and else too. It's like, right. This is not fun at all. Well, you never pulled um, a Sandy Lyle and walked off the golf course though. Did you? No, I did not. I've, I've finished the rounds. Um, <laughs> Wanted to leave it, but but I but yeah. I played on. Wanted to leave. Wanted to leave. Um, I played really well until the final round at, at Atlanta Athletic Club. So I always I'll always like that place a little bit. And then obviously Keegan winning, it's a pretty cool spot. Yeah. Um, How did you guys uh, get to be buddies? So we we were rookies the same year, same agent, and uh, we just kind of came out and didn't know anybody and started playing practice rounds together. And um, then we both won within like a month or six weeks of each other, both in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that PGA championship uh, that he won, he was in the group in front of me. I was in the last group with Duffner. Um, and so I was kind of watching him and we like before the day, we were like, Hey, one of us needs to win this thing, you know, type <laughs> yep. thing. Yep. And, and I blew up and he played great, had that amazing finish and ended up winning. Yeah. Uh, and then we teamed up and won the shark shootout that year too. So we had quite the rookie year on tour together. We just kind of shared these big, important life moments together. And we've been kind of inseparable ever since. And Keegan's a really funny guy. He's a very strange guy. And, uh, <laughs> he's a Vermonter. Get, what would you expect? He's a Vermonter. I, I understand Keegan really well. So I think well, we've good. always just gotten along because of that. So I, I understand things that he likes and doesn't like. And, 
and we've just had a ton of fun together. So we've played played a lot of practice rounds together. Obviously, um, I was in his wedding. We have uh, kids that are two weeks apart, so just weird stuff. You know, there's a lot of jokes that go into that. Yeah, like, oh, you, I'm boy, sure. you guys really do do everything I'm together. Sure, you know? I'm so, sure. Not to get a, into too much of a kumbaya kind of a thing, but how important is it to have a couple of close friends that are on tour? Because for the most part, most of the players travel. Some, they, they travel sometimes with families, but the logistics of kids and eventually when kids get to be school age, it's hard to travel with the family. And you're out by yourself for the most part. You may have a swing coach or you know, some other people in entourage, but it's, it's just you out there for two or three weeks at a clip. It can be a much more lonely life than I think a lot of people really appreciate or kind of understand. How critical is it or how important is it? How much easier does a life get when you've got at least a couple of buddies that, that you can just go and hang out with? Yeah, I mean, it's really nice. I, I've got a great group of buddies out there, um, and we, whenever we're in the same tournaments, it's so much fun. I mean, we have a great time playing practice rounds, practicing together, just like taking a break and chatting for a few minutes, having lunch together, whatever it is, rather yep. than being by yourself. Um, and, and it's, look, I'm not going to say that the PGA Tour is, is really tough and stinks and you should feel bad for us, but it is way different than people think it is. And there's, there's a lot of lonely time. There's a lot of downtime when you're not playing well. Things aren't, uh, things aren't that yeah. fun. And yeah, it's so one, it's one hotel after your family and, one hotel yeah. after another, one airport after another, one golf course after another, which sounds great to the guys putting hoods on Buicks, but yep, it wears on sure. everybody just just the same. Yeah, it does, and it, it it's look, it's great if you're playing well. It is awesome. I mean, there is very few things that are better if, if things are going good because you're you're walking proud and and you got a ton of energy and everything's going great and you get a lot yeah. of opportunities. And when it's not going good. You would rather do just about anything else because golf makes you feel like a worthless person when you're playing poorly, which is well, not there's nowhere really to hide. that good. <laughs> there's just nowhere to hide. There's no coach to sub you out and put you know somebody else in. Um, yeah. You're as vulnerable from an athletic standpoint as anybody can possibly be. There is literally yeah. nowhere to go. And um, you can sometimes know in, on a Friday, like, it's not going to be happening and I'll be heading to the airport and can we just get this over with? And that's... For an athlete, that that's a terrible way to be. That that's got to be yeah. a really difficult sort of thing. Hey, you've been doing tons of podcasts. You're like I said, the the one of the go to guests. It seems like that for people who do golf podcasts. But you have your own podcast as well. Is is member guest returning coming back? What is the state of member guest? And for people who are unfamiliar with it, tell people about it. Yeah, so we actually uh, so member guest is a is a podcast I started with a couple buddies um, two years ago, almost exactly. Um, and we did, uh, gosh, we did about 30 episodes. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, my buddy Dave Farrell, who's in, uh, the band Lincoln Park. And then, uh, his longtime friend, Mark Fiore, who, um, has done a lot of videography and and things for the band and, and kind of is the lifeblood of everything that we're doing at member guests. And (laughs) we had a a little bit of a hiatus this year, just scheduling and life stuff and, you know, stuff like that. But we actually, um, just started to record uh, a couple days ago, again, on a new season. So I'm actually going up uh, to L.A. to do some more stuff tomorrow, and you can break it here first. Member guest is coming back. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah. Well, so and uh, basically we do uh, – yeah. we we talk about everything, but it's, it's loosely based around golf and music. Yep. But there's no defining uh, – sort of theme if you will if we have a golfer on there sometimes we talk a little more golf sometimes when we have uh well you've had julie julie fowdy has been on i remember listening to amanda balionis was on 
Yep. Um, you, know, you guys have had a, a variety of people, which to me makes it fun. Obviously, I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, and the mix gets good. When, when you get the right people going um, and the conversation just flows, it's great. And, and yeah. sometimes it seems a little bit worked up. But when you've got golf and music, both rhythmic kind of things in a sort of a funky way, that I would imagine it appeals to people. And, and if you can carry Jamie Lovemark on a podcast, let me tell you, you're a better podcast host than I am because, you know, <laughs> Jamie's a good friend of mine, so I love to bust his chops whenever I have an opportunity. But, um, well, great. I will look forward to listening to, to season three. About when do you think you'll start dropping episodes? It should be. Um, I would think we're going to drop one this week. So Excellent. it's coming soon. It's coming in hot. I will look forward to listening to that. Listen, have a great holiday season. I'll look forward to seeing it on the PGA Tour in 2020. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you.